The left has a vision of the future. The right has a vision of the past. And the problem is, is that a vision of the future is often much more charismatic because people are inherently forward looking. And so one of the things that I really want to do is paint a vision of the future that is better, but is also consistent with our core principles. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny Burtka and Tom Sarouf. Today's guest is Chris Buskirk, the publisher and editor of American Greatness. He is a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times, author of Trump vs. the Leviathan, co-author of American Greatness, How Conservatism, Inc. Missed the 2016 Election, and What the Establishment Needs to Learn. And most recently, he has written America and the Art of the Possible, Restoring National Vitality in an Age of Decay, which he joins us to talk about today. So it's good to have you with us, Chris. Thanks for having me. And before we get to our interview, we'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, and our mission is Educating for Liberty. If you'd like to help us in fulfilling this mission, make sure to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. Well, Chris, it's it's good to have you on. And to start off the show, we're here to discuss your new book, which everyone should go out and purchase, America and the Art of the Possible, Restoring National Vitality in an Age of Decay. So I just want to begin by asking, you know, why did you write this book and why is it needed right now in 2023? You know, I wrote the book. I'll tell you a little backstory just of of how this particular book came to be versus a different earlier version, which is what I had sort of had in mind. The, the, The book came to be because, you know, I think there's there's obviously lots of things that uh, that are going wrong in these in the country, some obvious and I think some not so not so obvious. And what I really wanted to originally write the book about was some of the not so obvious things that that are evidence of decay in the country. You know, I guess just to make that a little more concrete, one of the things that had jumped out at me, a couple things, actually, that I was going to sort of revolve the book around originally was things like the fact that like productivity growth has effectively flatlined in the country for the past 50 years. And people sort of think like, no, I, I mean, I'm sure like productivity growth, like within this great technological golden era, I'm sure it's like just continuing to cruise ahead at like, you know, whatever, 5% a year or something like, you know, and it hasn't like, and we had as a, not just as America, but like Western civilization in general had, you know, sort of a, like a 250 year run, like from the industrial revolution, the middle of the 1700s up until about 1970, where you had these like successive technological breakthroughs that were like these, like actually really massive. Like they were just like step function changes in the amount of productivity that people could do. In other words, productivity just being like, you can produce 10, uh, 10 widgets for the, for the labor and the inputs that it used to take to produce one widget. You think about like the combustion engine or electricity or these sorts of things, like just the major things and people sort of have internalized that like, well, that just goes on forever. It's just like, you know, pretty soon it's only going to take like five minutes to build a Ferrari and everybody will have one. It'll cost like a quarter. And it's like, it actually, it actually hasn't been that way for decades now. Like there's some sort of incremental improvement for sure. 
And I thought, well, okay, people need to know this because it's actually, that has impacts on the way we make decisions, on living standards, on all these other things. And like one of my other things, and you know, you've heard me, I think, talk about this before is like American lifespans have been declining for over a decade now. And yet again, you've got this, I think just again, implicit assumption. If like, if you ask like, you do one of those man on the street interviews ago, like American lifespans more higher or lower than they were 10 years ago. They'd be like, God, that's an, that's an idiotic question. Why are you asking me? Obviously they're higher. Well, guess what? They're actually lower and they've been, uh, and they've been going down for, uh, 10 years. And that is, a, that's a huge problem because if you don't actually even know that those things are happening, you can't solve for them. Like you can't come up with solutions for them. And conservatives in particular tend to come have a certain set of, uh, of, of ails, you know, things that are ailing us that we obsess on. Mostly, they're mostly true, right? I'm not saying they're not true, but they're oftentimes not concrete enough to solve. And so what I wanted to do was, in the original version of the book, what I wanted to do was write about those sort of things that are very concrete, that are, that are problems. And I, I sort of sketched it out. I wrote it like a ton like about it, which never got published. And I thought, and then I looked at it, I'm like, like, I can't publish this book. Like this, all this is, is like one long complaint. And so I went back and I kind of talked to my publisher about it. I said, actually, maybe the book should be different. And I should spend like a half of the, a half of the book just talking descriptively. Here are things that people have been thinking about that aren't working, that are like concrete, quantifiable metrics of decay, but then spend the, spend the back half of the book talking about concrete ways where those problems that were described earlier in the book can be solved or at least improved. Like, and I always, I always hasten to add, there are no silver bullet solutions in this book. There are, there are, I think, big ideas, but they're big enough to be achieved and be a little bit crazy to talk about, but not so big that you're like, well, there's no way you can possibly pull that off. So anyway, that's sort of, that, that's sort of how I thought about the, this book and why I think it's necessary. And I guess just to kind of finish the thought, underlying all of it is a fundamental belief that like human agency matters. Like we can act and take action in a way that improves people's lives. Everything is not unsolvable. Everything isn't so big that we can't fix it. That actually what we need to do is define what it is we're trying to achieve in a very concrete way, and then come up with the solutions that are equally concrete and go about building the things that that solve the problems we've identified. Real quick follow-up, and then I'll let Tom jump here in the next with the next question. Why, why do you think it is that conservatives, I've noticed, you know, when they ask them to, when you ask them often to describe the problems that are ailing the country or the solutions, they, they immediately revert to really big sort of abstractions, you know, or a- abstract concepts of understanding of liberty or, you know, even when criticizing the left, it's about wokeness broadly. You know, I like liberty. I dislike wokeness. You know, I'm ge- I'm generally tracking there, but it seems like some of the very concrete things that you lay out, you know, uh, marriage and fertility rates, you know, broad based prosperity and a wage, you know, that you can support a family on life expectancy. These are really concrete things, even just measuring economic growth. And maybe we need to tweak how we measure that besides just GDP. Why do you think it is that conservatives skip to these big abstractions and don't address these very concrete markers of decline that could actually be measured and improved and turned around. 
there's a, I think there's a few reasons. There's I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons and why questions are always really hard to to answer. But I guess I would say a, a couple things that I, that jump out at me and people like you know people know that like I, like if you look at that first book I wrote five years ago, like it's a critique of the right. And my um, I always try when I'm doing this is to be constructive in my critique of the right because I believe that's where the hope is. And so I want our people to do better. Like, and, and, and so one of the reasons I think that we have been allowed, allowed ourselves, let me put it that way, to sort of get lulled to sleep by the, the, the desire to complain. Part of it's just like human nature. People like to complain, right? It, it feels good. And there's a visceral, there's a sort of this visceral release to doing it. But we have on the right, particularly in the post-war right, we have defined ourselves primarily about what we're in, in concrete terms about what we're against. You think about the, the founding essay in National Review in 1955 is, you know, the, the line everybody remembers from that I- issue is like the cover. We're standing athwart history yelling stop. We, for whatever reason, have defined ourselves by the past. And that's like it's in the it's in it's in the the word we use to describe ourselves, we're conservative. We're trying to conserve some the the good things of the past. And obviously that's, I think that's good, but that's not sufficient, right? What we have to be, we have to have a positive vision of the future. And like, that is actually the fundamental heritage of this country is the people who founded and settled this country when I, and I mean like sort of the original settlers, you know, sort of 1607, Jamestown, 1620, the the Massachusetts colony with the pilgrims, the Scrooby congregation lands, you know, Plymouth Rock. And those people had a vision of the way they thought the world should be and could be for themselves and their families and their friends. You know, you fast forward 150 years and you have the founders of the Republic. They did not simply complain about the the abuses of the English crown, right? And they didn't say, well, we're going to try and conserve the best parts of the Massachusetts Bay Colony of the 1620s. It was fantastic. It was like this religious golden age and we had this high social trust, right? They, They thought, well, no, we're in a different place in time now and there's these bad things going on. Ah, but the next step is here's what we're going to build in order to make to make the 1790s or the 1800s better. And that is like somehow there, that piece has been largely lost, I think, on the right. Like the left has a vision of the future. The right has a vision of the past. And the problem is, is that the vision, a vision of the future is often much more charismatic because people are inherently forward looking. And so one of the things that I really want to do is paint a vision of the future that is better, but is also consistent with our core principles. Uh, and that's really, it's those two things. Like we're not just about, hey, there were these great things that used to happen and they can't anymore. It's about there are these, actually they're fundamental core principles of human life that are part of the created order. And we actually have a moral obligation in order to try and bring those into being. And that requires being forward-looking, but based in principle, and it requires being active. And so what I really want to do with this book and with the ideas in it is to stimulate action. We want definitely want to get to and ask you about your vision and the actions that you would take to help us get there to sort of have this renewed sense of national vitality. But before we do that, sticking with what the descriptive elements of the current crisis, 
You mentioned five things that have sort of contributed to where we are today, which is globalization, financialization, science and tech stagnation. So the managerial critique that you make and a sort of a, a lack of thumos risk aversion. So, I mean, there are a lot of conservatives or right-leaning folks like Peter Thiel, now Senator J.D. Vance, obviously Trump. I don't know if, cap- yeah, I guess capitalized on a lot of the present discontents. So you, I've heard a lot in the recent years about things like the pitfalls of globalization and how innovation has stalled out. But something that is far less talked about and one of the great insights I'm taking away from reading your book is the financialization critique, which is not talked about enough. So can you sort of describe what financialization is, how it comes about and why people don't talk about it? Yeah. So here's my description of financialization. It's when you have an economy built on the basis of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people sitting in offices and their main output is producing little pieces of paper that they send to the other people that say, you owe me money. And that's basically it. And we have a whole industry that is based upon that premise. They're not producing, they're not producing a better, like a, a cure for cancer. They're not producing a better, a better car, or, you know, to use the, the famous Peter Thiel quote there, you know, we wanted flying cars. We got a 140 characters, you know, Twitter. 280 characters now. That tells you how old the quote is. But nobody's producing a flying car. They can't produce a self-driving car. For all the for all the billions of dollars put into it, we're pretty far away from, from achieving a self-driving car. And the reason is, you know, there's, these things are sort of intertwined. One of the, there's a, like a chicken egg question, like does is financialization the result of a, of a stagnation in innovation or is it the cause of it? I, it, there's, they're intertwined for sure. My, I tend to think that that the tech stagnation comes first, and that the financialization is a response to that, and that the financialization then accelerates the stagnation. Because what happens is, and you see this now, like the the smartest people, you know, this is a generalization, obviously, smartest people go to Wall Street, right? Because why? Because if you're really smart that's a really good place to make a lot of money. Like you, that's the way the economy is built. Like it, it's not that long ago in this country where the, you know, if you were at the top of your class at an elite school, you would probably go to medical school. Right. And that hasn't, it hasn't been that way for a long time. Medical school still remains very competitive to get into, but you know, the, the really, really smart, you, you know, the really, really smart kids who are graduating from top undergraduate programs, like they're, goal is not to become like the uh, the chief of staff at Harvard General. You know, and if it's actually funny, if you go back and watch movies from the 60s or 70s, there'll be references to the fact that there are kids coming out of like Ivy's and like the smartest kid in the class yeah, just wants to go to Harvard medical, medical School. That same kid now wants to go to Harvard, Harvard Business School. And so financialization is, it, it, what it does is, among other things, is it causes a malinvestment of human of human capital is that people just say, look, you know, if I'm a very successful doctor, I'll make a million dollars a year. If I'm not a very successful doctor, I'll make $250,000 a year. If I am really successful on Wall Street, I'll make a hundred million dollars a year. And if I'm not very successful on Wall Street, I'll make $10 million a year at a hedge fund or whatever. And pretty easy to figure out which, you know, why people go that path. And that is, uh, that really is, but it, it, it tells a bigger story though about the way the economy 
works now. And, and there's a cultural aspect of this too, which part of it is the risk aversion. But the, the problem that you run into with this is that what everybody is optimizing for is just improvement at the margin. Right. And that is like, and this is kind of like the critique you have of places like McKinsey and a lot of the consulting companies is basically they don't create anything. What they try and do is tell you how over the next, you know, some sort of short period, one year, three year, five years, how you can take something that already exists and make a 6% better. And that, you know, if you add leverage to it, maybe you can make it a 9% better. And, but you haven't actually created anything like efficiency is good like i'm not arguing against that but like more often than not what it comes down to is not engineering a better product but engineering a balance sheet or engineering an income statement you know those are things that like they ought to be done but you're what we've done is we're majoring in minors here like what you don't have to worry that much about that if you have a better product um if for your company and you're growing at 500 percent a year because everybody's got to have it and so, you know, financialization, I think, is both evidence of, of tech stagnation. It's also an accelerant of that same stagnation. Chris, you use the phrase bullshit jobs, which I laughed when I, I saw that. And some of my friends have been, have been talking about that lately. And I would imagine that, you know, some of the, the, the jobs that you've just described would fall into that category how do we, you know, for the young people that are coming through ISI, I mean, we work with some of the, the top students graduating from, from the Ivy League schools, from, you know, smaller classical Christian schools, places like Hillsdale, Grove City. How do we get them to, you know, because there's going to be a temptation if they're successful, if they're ambitious, you know, they want to make money. They want to provide for their family. They're, they're probably going to be drawn to some of those elite careers is there a way we can actually realign the incentives or maybe just reshape their imagination so that they can they can actually be building things and and also maybe making money and reaping some of the reward without kind of getting drawn into these cul-de-sacs yeah before we can realign the incentives we have to reshape their imagination like those two things go hand in hand i I wish i had come up with the phrase bullshit jobs it's uh david graber wrote the book bullshit jobs based on an essay you know, and the thing about the bullshit jobs is there are a lot of them uh, in our economy, like the so-called laptop class. A lot of that is bullshit jobs. It's things that, you know, it's things that don't actually produce anything. And both the employer and the employee both know that the work is fake and isn't really doing much. It's like your job is just to send e- emails to somebody else who receives them and their job is to like forward them to a third person or something, you know, and the, there's actually... When I wrote it, this hadn't happened yet, but there's just this great example right in front of our eyes right now of, of, of how endemic this is in the economy. And you know, the place that people think it is least likely to happen is in tech, is in like Silicon Valley technology companies. But look at Twitter, right? You know, Elon has reduced headcount there like 60%. And from what I am told is like he could cut the, the headcount there another by half again. And it's just there were so many unnecessary people inside of Twitter. And, you know, the predictions were by the, you know, the the Elon haters when he bought the company and started laying people off and people started quitting as, oh, you know, this guy thinks he knows everything. Like all these great engineers are going, all the talent's leaving and just watch Twitter crash and burn. I haven't seen Twitter go down. Like I haven't seen the I haven't seen the software crash of you. No, because it hasn't and it's not going to. 
because in fact what what all these people like believed wasn't true which is that they needed massive headcount in order just to keep twitter running well twitter's actually kind of simple right it's not like you're it's not like you're trying to run like yeah i mean you need more people to run a bunch of mcdonald's right because that just that just requires more more headcount how many places is the twitter phenomena with with bloated headcount how many places is that replicated? You know, the, the ultimate irony here, for, for number one, well, first of all, it's every big tech company. Like, people I talk to are in that world, like, everybody's sort of known it. Elon acted on it, and now that he's done it, everybody's like, yeah, okay, we know. Like, Facebook probably, is, probably has four or five times more people than it needs. Google has four or five times as many people as it needs. And, and then you look at all these startups that raised easy money in the, you know, over the last five years, they're bloated too. And the, you know, and that is just, again, you talk about a misallocation of human capital, like all these people are tied up. There's all this money there. Like they don't want to leave because they're getting paid well, but they're actually not producing anything. And so this is a, you know, the, what I was going to say is the irony here is you've got, I, you know, you, I guarantee you, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Google, they're all, they're, they are all clients of these big consulting firms whose job is to make them more efficient. The irony here is like they're, you know, I, they're paying McKinsey millions of dollars or Bain or one of the other co- co- competitors that are paying them millions of dollars to make them more efficient, but their headcount is 500% what it needed to be. So the, so the efficiency experts actually suck at, be, at making people more efficient. Is that because of the managerialism or what? Because you would think that there would be an incentive to cut. Why is it? Why are they? I mean, they're starting to cut now in light of where the economy's at and maybe taking Elon's lead. But what is the incentive not to cut, to have way too many staff members? So the, there's a couple things, I think, going on here. One is, is that inside of, the, inside of the biggest tech companies, particularly the ones that make a lot of money, like Twitter never made a lot of money, but you think about it like a Facebook or a Google that do make a ton of money. First of all, they're under no financial pressure. Like they're making oodles of money even with having headcount that's way too high. And there is, there, there is a, you know, like there is a great man theory at work in Silicon Valley. I mean, this is why you see, you know, people like the WeWork guy, like just complete megalomaniac, right? He comes up with this like groundbreaking idea. Like, I know we can rent office space and then we'll sublease it to other people. And somehow like I'm a tech visionary, but so people, like that because there's like a pattern matching aspect of it where like these kind of sociopathic megalomaniac personalities actually have built great companies in the past. And so he blows up WeWork and then gets backed again by major VCs in his new startup. And so what's going, what you see going on here is that there is like this sort of implicit belief, like if we just suck up like an extra 10,000 people, surely there's got to be one or two in there that are kind of like come up with like the next big thing. We can't predict who it is, but if we if we hire enough of them, somebody's going to do it. But I think what actually happens inside these big organizations is that people just get eaten by the Borg and they actually become way less innovative. Like the innovation is always, and you, I write about this in the book, innovation is always coming from like very small dedicated groups. That's just like you see that pattern repeat over and over again throughout human history. Like I use the 
Like I use the example of Edinburgh, the Scottish Enlightenment in the middle of the 18th century. You think about like these, you know, philosophers, uh, proto-industrialists, scientists, there's like literally like 50 of them and they all knew each other. Which, you know, when I was reading about this, just sort of to write the book, I was sort of like, I basically knew the outlines. I didn't realize that these guys all overlap, uh, their lives all, all overlap, and they were all members of the same two social clubs in Edinburgh, the, the poker club and the select society. And like, they all knew each other, like Adam Smith knew David Hume. And, you know, they like all these people were sort of like, it's the iron sharp, sharpens iron theory. And it really did. And it didn't take... 10,000 people or 100,000 people to work on these things and create the Scottish Enlightenment. Like, it wasn't even 100 people. Like, it was, like, maybe 50. You saw the same thing, like, with the Industrial Revolution in in Northern England at roughly at roughly the same time. You know, all the, you know, think about, like, all the technologies, like the, the loom and the power loom and these things that took, that were invented over the course of, like, maybe 40 or 50 years. Again, we're not talking about 100 people. Here, we're talking about a very small group of people who were sort of working on one common project. And this, uh, you know, and they achieved a lot. Like they made, they remade Britain and and created the modern world in a lot of ways. You know, you kind of fast forward to the United States, like you have the same thing with our, the founders of the Republic. Again, we all know the founders. What people don't know is that like it was sort of a replay uh, of Edinburgh and the Scottish Enlightenment in the United States, like. Benjamin Franklin founds the Junto Society, uh, which becomes ultimately becomes the American Philosophical Association. But like Alexander Hamilton's a ma- member, George Washington's a member, Madison's a member. Like these guys all had, you know, they were all engaged in a common meta project. And then fast forward to the United States, you look at the the kind of the classic Golden Age Silicon Valley of like sixties, seventies, maybe into the eighties. You know, it. it it gets built around Stanford. You know, you've got Stanford there, and then you've got Park Labs, the Xerox Research and Development Facility, and you've got this tiny group of people. And people forget that, like Palo Alto and the Silicon Valley area, was actually quite a small community in the '60s and '70s. It's not big today, and you know, a lot of like the tech golden age, especially in IT, that we've seen and continue to benefit from, was like it all grew out of that from you know '50-ish years ago. And so one of the things when I think about was thinking about in the book is like, how do you try and catalyze these really small dynamic communities? Because it's like, it's, it's really non-egalitarian, right? About how, about, about how humanity moves forward, about how countries move forward. It's like the, that old thing, like it's small dedicated minorities that change history. It's so true. And the question is then like, some of these things happen organically, but like, how do we create like these seed beds of renewal where those type of communities are encouraged? And you know that that is like a lot of what I was thinking about in in the prescriptive element of the book is like, how do you make it easier for those communities to form? How do you encourage those? Because that is, I think, really an important part of a vital society. Well, that was one of the things we wanted to ask you was how do we get sort of a new elite class? Because part of your the descriptive part, the first part of your book is a pretty scathing critique of a lot of our elites. And just the, the idea that they sort of lack thumos, they lack spiritedness, vigor. And when you think another one of the themes in your book is sort of the idea of America as a frontier nation. And that was a lot of the innovation, a lot of the dynamism and the early, maybe the first half or basically until the frontier closed until we traveled all the way westward. 
was that was producing a lot of sort of churn and newness. And that's not the first time we've even discussed that on this podcast before. But I, so I guess the question would be, now that the frontier is closed, how do we move forward as, an, as a frontier nation? Or does our, do we have to now think in sort of different terms of a new American identity? So I use a term in the book called pathological risk aversion. I mean, that's something that I think is a modern American phenomenon, not only American, it, it, it happens elsewhere too. But like this was a risk taking country and we have become a risk averse country. Like the idea, you know, I go back to the like very early America, though it was true until sometime in the last century, like Americans were risk takers and because they, there was a reason to do it. It's like, you, you know, you have risk takers like the people who like fly in those squirrel suits and jump like jump off the side of a canyon or a bridge or something like that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who maybe there's actually a little bit of that, but there are people who are, have a, like there's a there's a telos to the risk taking. Right. There's a because you think about America as a frontier nation, you've got these. Um, you've got these very small community settlements, you know, clinging to like the bare edge of the Atlantic coast of North America. Why are they there in the first place? Well, they're there for a variety of reasons, but the, you know, the pilgrims were, you know, were different than the people in Tidewater, Virginia, but they all had a vision of the future and of a place that could be. And you had this big continent. They didn't know how big at the time. They knew pretty big though. And they said, wow, there's a lot of land there. There's a lot of resources and we can make a future that we think is better for ourselves and for our families and for our friends. And that united those people and it made taking the risk of being there worth it because like they thought like tomorrow can be better than today. Like that's fundamental to what we think of as the American dream, which is that like if I work hard and play by the rules, maybe even sometimes uh, I have to make up the rules for everybody. You know, that's what the founders did in a lot of ways. But I can create a set of rules that works so that you don't, there can be good outcomes. Like if you put in effort, you're going to get back a reward. And those people transferred and their, and their descendants transferred that energy into figuring out how to create a, a new civilization that took up a whole continent. And by the time we go from being, you know, the Plymouth settlement to by the time we get to Santa Monica on the Pacific coast, you know, it's taken us a hundred well, a couple hundred years from 1620, but from the founding of the Republic, it takes us like 130 or 140 years to until, you know, sort of California is, you know, really sort of, a, you know, a robust thriving part of the country. And now you just have fill in work to do. I live in a fill-in state. Arizona came into the union in 1912. But by that point, like the frontier is effectively closed. You still have like kind of elements of it. And what happens is, um, is that there's still all this like, like really youthful, restless energy in, in, in the American people. And it's like, well, what do you do with it now? Like you can't just keep going West because we like, we ran out of continent. Um, and uh, sadly, Woodrow Wilson had a solution for that, which is, ah, okay, we can, we can go to war abroad. And so in 1917, he starts, or doesn't start, but he leads America into its first of many, in quotes, wars for democracy. And we have not been at peace since. And so a lot of that vigor and a lot of that vitality has been, I think, dissipated by a century-long 
series of wars and of wars abroad. And so one of my main arguments is like we need to figure out how we can direct the, like the time, talent and treasure of the American people into making the lives and living standards of Americans better because you maybe could make the argument 70, 80, 90 years ago, like everything's going so well, we are so rich, <laughs> living standards are rising so much, like we have the excess of all of these things in order to expend abroad. But in fact, like living standards have flatlined for Americans for 50 years. And if you're like sort of in the lower lower half of the, uh, of the social order, they've declined. And we need to fix that. And that is like really the predicate or that, that to me writing the book, which is how do we use our resources in order to improve the living standards of normal Americans? Chris, I'm wondering as we're, we're wrapping up here, if you could, getting back to sort of the, where do we go from here? If you could define what vitality means and also maybe a few concrete steps you think we could take to get there. And maybe in your response, if you could touch on this, what I see is maybe a little bit of a tension between the need to create a sense of solidarity and cohesion in American life, which might me mean things, you know, that you that you hit on, like, you know, deglobalization, maybe it's, it's re this move away from maybe total open trade or towards restricting immigration, things like this. Uh, you, you could imagine a libertarian saying those things will actually slow productivity growth and innovation. So how do you respond to, to to some of those critiques when you lay out your solutions for vitality? Well, look, a, cu a couple of things on the, the sort of libertarian critique is that is that the the slowdown in productivity growth, you know, measured, you know, in economics, they call it total, total factor productivity. The slowdown in productivity growth has basically paralleled year for year the increase in global free trade, and to which I'm sure I will be told, well, you know, correlation does not equal causation, Chris. I'm like, okay, well, you know, okay, maybe, but like we've had 50 years of it. And so maybe we should focus like more intentionally on how do we increase total factor productivity. And it's not simply by trading with China. You know, my, 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 my really dark humor joke is like what's been America's leading export for the past 30 years. Has it been like, I don't know, oil and gas? Uh, has it been uh, agriculture? Has it, what, what's it, what's it been? Uh, like mostly the middle class, like we exported it to China and that's really bad for this country. And the, the free market on the specific hit on like, well, what about free markets? First of all, I think that's too ideological. Like, let's just judge outcomes. Like, how do we get the outcome we want? And, and so I would want to de-ideologize so that to some extent and just purely focus on the outcomes. And the outcomes so far have not been good for most Americans. So like that is like the most solid concrete response on that point. The other one, though, that I think is a, an important sort of more that has more of an ideological or political valence is that like the most is that the most important free trade market that Americans should be concerned with maintaining is the one that exists between the 50 states. Right. That is that actually is a really unique free trade area. And we need to make sure that that is strong and vibrant and vital. And to your point about like, what is vitality? Like, the, you know, there's a, from at a, at a national or civilizational level, I think about that as, as, as a nation or a civilization that is self-sustaining and it has a high capacity for collective action. M meaning what? Meaning that it can define 
big goals. And based on those goals, it can identify big projects and it can achieve them. So the biggest project in the country after the founding was the front was was conquering the frontier and creating a nation like that's a massive project. You know, in in the last I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years, what, what's been a big project? Like, let's say after World War II, you know, Apollo, like moon landing, very big project. But you think about 2023 America and like what is a big project that we could all agree upon? And that the fact that when you ask that question, probably people immediately think like, I don't know if we could actually agree. Like, could you get like 60% agreement on even if you identified two or three things and just say, would you agree that these are the top three? I think that's hard, actually hard to imagine that you could get to, because you can't get, it's not like a, it's not like a a presidential election where you can win with 48% of the vote if you get the right electoral combination. Like if you want a big civilization scope project that shows that you, your society has a high capacity for collection of action, like you got to have 60, 70% buy-in. Like everybody was bought into the frontier project in America. And so there's, uh, and so that's why when I look at it, I say like, well, let's identify things that are very quantifiable. Like they're not particularly ideological. They are like pretty self-evident goods and they're big enough to seem slightly insane, but also achievable. Like if you, if you really are firing on all cylinders. And so some of the things that I identified and like, you know, one of the things I think is actually quite important, and I think there is one of the ones I've weirdly gotten pushback on, is is that I say like you know I talked about this before is like is is like health and age like we should we should want to have increasing life expectancy and better health for all Americans, and so I say I have this project America one hundred. They say like we should we should our goal should be that in fifty years the median life expectancy at birth is 100 years old for Americans. And we, should de- and we should have decreasing chronic disease, heart disease, diabetes, those sorts of things. Because disease, chronic disease has been increasing, life expectancies have been decreasing. So not only are people living shorter lifespans in America, they're sicker when they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s than they were. And there are contra, there are contra examples of this. You know, France the same over the same period where our life expectancies have been declining, theirs have been increasing. Like we're down close to 75 years median life expectancy. The French are now at about 80.5 years. They're living longer and their incidence of chronic disease like heart disease and diabetes is lower than Americans. Boy, that seems weird for a country where 35% of the people are daily smokers, right? We were told that as soon as Americans stopped smoking, that everybody would like be healthier and live longer. And weirdly, it's actually been the opposite. Like we have very low smoking rates, but we have more heart disease and we have more diabetes and people are dying younger. And so that seems like something where, you know, if like literally you talk about vitality in a civilization, like, you know, vital, you know, is the same root for life. Let's just have more life. And and that is, and I I get into detail about like how we could actually achieve this in the book, but that seems to be, to be like a predicate for saying that you actually have a vital civilization. You have one where actually, where people are actually healthier and they live longer. And the pushback, by the way, is, is that I've gotten on that has not been on the goal itself, though. I know people think really a hundred, is that possible? Maybe. We should try, because if we only got to 90, wouldn't that be a huge improvement? But the pushback I've gotten is when people say, 
no, no, no. Like surely people are living longer. And I'm like, actually, no. And that's like a bit of a, that's like sort of a red pill for people when they realize that it's not that, 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 you know, what, that the health outcomes in this country are not good. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris. People, if people want to read more about the specifics, they'll have to buy the book. We will link it in the show notes. It is America and the art of the possible. But if people want to follow more of your work here and read more of what you're doing, where can they find you? Go to the website, amgreatness.com, or you can find me on Twitter at the Chris Buskirk. Well, thanks again, Chris. And thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age articles, ISI books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. Thank you.